As more of us rely increasingly on our smartphones and similar devices, the terms addiction and obsession have become common ways to describe our relationship with technology. But while many of us might suspect that we have less control over our actions than we would like, there's a broad and confusing spectrum when it comes to compulsive behavior, and at its most extreme, it can even be deadly. So for this week's Please Explain, we are turning our attention to compulsions and Joining me now is Sharon Begley, the senior science writer for the publication STAT. Her latest book is Can't Just Stop, an investigation of compulsions. It is published by Simon & Schuster, and I'm very pleased to welcome her to our show. Hello. Hello, Leonard. Thank you. And we, uh, during these Please Explain segments, always invite our audience to join the conversation. If you have any questions about compulsions or addictions, give us a call. Our number is 212-433-9692. You can write to us on our show page at wnyc.org slash Lopate or on Facebook or Twitter where our handle is at Leonard Lopate. So let's get right down to it. Is there a, a good definition of compulsions? There is a definition. Um, I'll leave it to you to decide if it's good or not. Well, are you happy with it? (laughs) Um, I am content with it, so let me unpack that a little bit. Um, When I started the book, um, the first uh, challenge was to, as you sort of alluded to, figure out the difference between an addictive behavior and a compulsive one. And the reason that was a challenge is that in you know, just everyday conversation, and also in some of the scientific literature, the two terms are thrown around almost interchangeably. Um, So somebody will talk about being addicted to shopping, and then you'll also read compulsive shopping, Um, you know, addicted to the Internet, compulsive Internet use. So to cut to the chase, um, the working definition of compulsions are behaviors that arise from anxiety. If you do not do the compulsion, you are just filled with this overwhelming, intolerable sense that something is seriously, seriously wrong. And in contrast, an addiction begins with um, a a sort of flash of pleasure. Um, This thing that you're doing brings you enjoyment. It brings you joy. Um, It brings you, you know, just a sense of fun even. Um, Think of gambling. Gambling is the one recognized behavioral addiction by mainstream psychiatry. People gamble because they love to do it, at least initially. But with a compulsion, you actually don't love what you're doing. It doesn't feel that good. All it does is drain away anxiety. So those are two very, very different feelings and very, very different behaviors. And it can range from rather mild ones like fear of flying to very serious ones like ADD, ADHD, uh, OCD. OCD, absolutely. Um, So that's one of the messages that I hope readers will get, that human behavior, um, and this is obviously not an original observation, but exists along a very, very broad continuum. Um, And uh, at points along the continuum, I think it's safe to say that, you know, there are quirky behaviors, there are eccentric behaviors, but at the extreme, as you just said, Leonard, um, there are behaviors that really do qualify 
as mental disorders. And um, OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder, really is the granddaddy of the compulsive behaviors. Um, so, you know, the obvious question, of course, is well, where does eccentricity end and a, a mental, a true mental disorder begin? Um, so, you know, this being behavior and psychology and psychiatry, um, it's a little bit tricky um, and the lines are somewhat blurry. But again, the, the most helpful working definition is that if a disorder, or if a behavior, I should say, is causing you distress and impairment, if it is you know, giving you a feeling that um, things are not right, if it is impairing your ability to work, to go to school, to have relationships, just to operate in the world, then you're talking about a true mental disorder. But for so many of the compulsive behaviors I looked at and the people who behave compulsively, whom I spoke to, their behavior falls well, well short of being a mental disorder. And that's why we're using the word spectrum. Yes, exactly. Some of these uh, things can be treated with medications, but not all of them. Well, in fact, many of them are not even recognized as um, actual diagnoses. Um, so you certainly will not get insurance reimbursement for them. But yes, for OCD, which, as I say, is the most clearly, definitively, unambiguously recognized of the compulsive disorders, um, for some people, the, uh, the antidepressants known as SSRIs, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, that's the sort of Prozac, Zoloft class of antidepressants, do help, but for not more than maybe a third of people. Um, so very um, challenging conditions um, for which the therapies are far, far from perfect. And in the case of OCD, uh, are people aware of the fact that they uh, th that the rest of the world sees them as uh, acting slightly crazy? I, I knew of a woman who was afraid to breathe the air outside of her room because the germs would kill her. She was convinced of that. And you write about a person named Shala Nicely who really has some fascinating problems. Um, that's a very kind way to put it, Leonard. Um, so the, the general answer to your question is, for the most part, people who are wrestling with OCD do understand that, they're, that they are perceiving the world in a way that is incorrect. In fact, there's even a technical description for this. It's called egotistonic, which means that people recognize that, in the case of the woman you described, the air outside her room she knows with one part of her brain it really is not filled with germs such that if she breathes, breathes it, she's, she's going to die. But there's a little bit of her that really does believe that, and so she, she deals with that however she can. So in the case of the um, woman you mentioned um, in the book, her name is indeed Shala Nicely. She has had OCD since she was a little girl, and one of its manifestations was her belief, her conviction, that her cat, Fred was in her refrigerator. So, you know, accidents can happen. Cat, cats, I guess, can wander into the refrigerator, and if they're quiet and you close the door, you know, that would be a bad thing. So she opened the refrigerator to check, and Fred was not there, so that was a good thing. But then there was this little voice in her brain. Maybe he was hiding behind that gallon of milk. Maybe he really was there and you didn't see him. On the other hand, she thought, no, that really is ridiculous. But it was so easy to just check the refrigerator again that she did it. So she was not able, you know, for a very, very long time to get out of this loop, obsession that Fred is in the refrigerator, compulsion 
to check. And it's and again, a reason that it is so, so debilitating is that you know, the vast majority of people with OCD know, this is just an aberrant signal from my brain, but by God, I have to give into it. I'm speaking with Sharon Begley, senior science writer for the publication STAT, whose book on this kind of these compulsions is called Can't Just Stop. I'm reading it that way because each one of those words has a period after it. An investigation of compulsions. It is published by Simon & Schuster. This is WNYC, WNYC.org. I'm Ludwig Lopate. Is there a genetic component to this or uh, are these uh, are this, is OCD something that uh, might have an environmental cause? There's a little bit of a genetic component, um, partly because there is for, for so much of our behavior. But identical twins who, um, of course, have the same genes um, in each pair of identical twins, um, it is less than half the time that both will have OCD. In other words, more than half the time one might have it. If one has it, the other does not. So genetics is perhaps a partial explanation, but it doesn't really get you very far. It looks like for the, mo the majority of cases of OCD, there's an environmental, a strong environmental component. It's not really clear what that is, um, but let me give you just one example. Um, this is not OCD, but um, com compulsive hoarding, um, which also is a recognized uh, psychiatric disorder. Um, so one woman I spoke to um, had not been a hoarder um, through her young adult years, and then one time she was moving. Um, she was a newly graduated college student, and like many people in that situation, all of her stuff fit in her car. She just packed her car with, you know, clothing and books and papers and all things like that. And she had parked it wherever, and it, it was cleaned out. Um, it, it, it was stolen. The car, the car was still there, but all the contents were stolen. And that, needless to say, was quite traumatic. Um, and ever since then, she told me she could not, she cannot stand to get rid of anything. She felt like her, her entire history had been stolen from her, and she just is not going to get rid of anything ever again. What about uh, common problems like claustrophobia and agoraphobia? Are they forms of compulsion? No, or those those are considered phobias. Um, and as you're sort of um, implying, the, the taxonomy here is um, quite tricky, um, you know, because human behavior doesn't always correspond to the words that we have to describe it. But phobias are, are considered uh, a different category of things, partly because there's no obvious compulsive part that goes along with them. I mean, yes, if you're phobic, about heights, then you won't go to the 20th floor of a building. But other than that, there's not a compulsive behavior usually that goes along with them. We have people calling in, uh, so I want to take some of these calls, and then we will continue our conversation. I want to get to when uh, people started writing about compulsions. Uh, was it Sigmund Freud? Well, let's take some calls first. Uh, our first caller is Domini. Damani, is it? Damani Hi, from Brooklyn. Hi, you're on the air. Hi, thank you so much for taking my call. Uh, my question was, you know, this is a, this is really interesting, but I wondered, is there a line? Is there a, a line that's crossed when a uh, when a, an, an addiction becomes uh, compulsive? Um, you know, I mean, the first thing I can think of is 
say you're, you know, you're quitting smoking, that, you know, you, uh, you formed the habit as a, or you, you formed the addiction as a habit, and then as you want to quit, there's this compulsive uh, feeling to, you know, to like this hand-to-mouth kind of uh, muscle memory that, that you do as a smoker, and people begin to eat more um, as they quit smoking cigarettes because they, they're this, this compulsive order or feeling to put something in their mouth. And is there, you know, is, is there a line that, that you cross one way or another when going from a compulsive disorder to an addiction? Um, that's my question. Sharon? Yes, that's a great question. Um, and it underlines how the understanding of mental disorders and just behaviors in general, I mean, we're not talking about, you know, a blood test or, you know, a, a blood pressure cuff. Um, these are very subjective calls. But the answer to the question is, yes, something that begins as an addiction, um, which as I was describing earlier, starts in a feeling of, of pleasure. In your example, um, smoking, I mean, it's the nicotine hit. It does give you positive reinforcement. It's pleasurable. It energizes you, you know, whatever. And then when you try to quit, um, a lot of things are going on. Um, there is physical withdrawal as changes happen in the brain. But yes, when you keep yourself from picking up, you know, that, that cigarette that you have vowed never to pick up again, and you back away and you still feel attracted to it, absolutely, there will be a feeling of anxiety, which, again, is the defining criterion for compulsion. Um, but the way the psychiatrists look at it, if it's if a behavior's origins were on the addictive side of things, which again, smoking is, um, alcoholism, um, drug use is, then it really qualifies as an addiction th throughout the, you know, the whole the whole behavior, including when you're trying to quit. But absolutely, as you're saying, um, you know, this is, this is psychiatry, not you know, oncology or something. And you write about video games and smartphone game apps. Uh, which I, I guess are originally just addictions, but at a certain point can become compulsions? Well, they absolutely can. And uh, I would say that I learned the most from the reporting I did for what became the chapter on digital compulsions. Um, so, yes, absolutely. Um, if you are starting to play a video game, you probably like it, um, and you like it enough that you continue playing it. Um, but as people describe, and, you know, I spoke to a bunch of um, hardcore gamers, they describe a sort of trajectory in which, so in which something that had been a lot of fun becomes somewhat less fun, and that they feel driven to continue playing, to keep trying to level up, uh, you know, to keep beating a level, to keep gathering Easter eggs or loot or killing the bad guys. Um, in a way that has become compulsive, i.e., if they don't do it, there's an anxiety there. Um, and that really um, crosses over into our everybody's use of, of digital technology, um, most obviously smartphones. And the way the research has um, landed, um, the explanation is that there are just a number of aspects of digital technology that make it compulsive. Um, one of them is it has this what's called a reward structure described as intermittent and variable. And that simply means um, that the good stuff that comes from using it sometimes arrives 
and some that's the intermittent part. And it, when it arrives, it can be an amazing reward, or it can just be, you know, so-so. That's the variable part. And that's a slot machine um, sort of thing. Um, and the reason that drives a compulsion is that, let's take texting, no matter how frequently you check, even if you checked only a second ago, a brilliant text might have just come in or a brilliant email. Um, and there and may be feel, a cat in your refrigerator. Exactly. And you feel anxiety about possibly missing something. So, you know, again, to the question about addiction or compulsion, um, you know, I would just say look at all of us and, or, you know, do some introspection about how you are glued to your smartphone. And, you know, at least for a lot of people, it's not wholly fun and enjoyable. A lot of it is I just feel I have to keep checking because if I don't, I'm going to miss something. I'll get in trouble with work or I'll miss something having to do with my family, whatever. It's anxiety-driven, and that doesn't feel so great. My guest is Sharon Begley, senior science writer at STAT, uh, the life sciences publication of the Boston Globe, and the author of New York Times bestseller, Train Your Mind, Change Your Brain. Her most recent is Can't Just Stop an investigation of compulsions published by Simon & Schuster. We will continue our conversation and take your calls. Our number here is 212-433-9692. You can write to us on our show page at WNYC.org or on Facebook or Twitter, where our handle is at Leonard Lopate. And we are back with Sharon Begley on today's Please Explain. Her book, Can't Just Stop, an investigation of compulsions, published by Simon & Schuster. Uh, I'm a bit confused about one thing that we talked about earlier, and if we can clear it up, then I can get to more of the calls. Uh, The difference between uh, compulsions and phobias. For example, people who are germ-phobic, who don't want to shake hands, uh, wouldn't that be similar to the woman who was convinced that if she went outside that she was going to die because of the germs? Hello? Sharon, are you there? I can hardly hear you. I'm sorry. Oh. There you go. That's better. Okay. Well, let me try that again. (laughs) Although that was a long question. Sorry. The difference between phobias and and compulsions, somebody is is germ-phobic, for example, doesn't want to shake hands uh, because... uh, in fact, we have a prominent politician who says that he may be germ-phobic. Um, is that all that different than the OCD woman who is convinced that when she went outside, right. the germs are going to um, kill her? So it certainly shares some characteristics. Um, if it is OCD, um, which can manifest itself as indeed something having to do with germs, it, it shows up as a feeling that no, ma- no matter what you have done, your hands are covered with germs. Um, so it goes beyond just fearing germs um, and goes to, even if you have just come out of the shower, you believe that your hands are, are again, just, just contaminated um, and you have to keep washing them. So people with OCD who have this form of it um, wash their hands numerous times a day. Somebody who just has germ phobia probably simply avoids situations where he or she um, feels that he will be you know, contaminated. A listener writes in to ask, how close are compulsions to superstitions? What uh, which can often be an effort to control life when it seems unstable. What What are your thoughts about that? 
Are you not hearing me again, Sharon? Well, maybe we have to take a little break and uh, reestablish the line. We can also take some calls. Okay. Okay, let's go to Jono from the West Village. Is it Jono? Jono? Yes. Hi. How are you? Um, the the uh, the expert was talking about in the previous segment the um, nature of the personality that has the compulsion. Um, I'm wondering what Ms. Begley thinks about the traditional recovery literature of therapy that says that someone with an addiction or compulsion actually has an undergirding spiritual malady, which is made manifest through compulsions and addictions, meaning the compulsions themselves are sort of immaterial. It's the nature of that person's makeup or wiring or soul, whatever word you want, that seeks out the sickness or the compulsion. Did you hear that, Sharon? Okay, well, uh, we will hold that thought. Uh, why don't you just... The suspense is killing me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I have no control over, uh, over th- these kinds of things. I used to run my own board, uh, and under those circumstances, mm. I would just probably put on some music at this time. But uh, these days, uh, being more professional here at WMYC, I have a wonderful audio engineer who's trying to figure out what's going on here, what's I get going it. I, wrong. I work on Broadway, and our sound designers are also <laughs> working their tails off. So, <laughs> Have we found out what's happened with Sharon? Okay. Well, we'll keep the conversation going. I'm sorry I, I, uh, uh, she's not going to hear your question. But no, I'm gonna... not at all. It's a, it's a great segment. Thank you. David from Belrose, you're on the air. Oh, gee. Hi. Hello, Hello, David. Hi. I was wondering if people who are, have the problem with eating morbidly obese, are they addicted or have an obsession for food? Right. So that's another example where, you know, the language that we use might not map precisely onto what people are actually doing. So I did speak to a a few people um, who eat, uh, well, let's say, who eat uh, in an extreme way. And I asked them what they're feeling just before they eat too much or, or eat yet again. And for some of them, it was indeed this feeling that they're, they're filled with anxiety and they just have to find an outlet for it. Um, but for others, it really is. Uh, uh, I mean, people eat to calm depression. Um, people eat because they're bored. So that's a very, very tricky one. Um, but it shows uh, one of the, the other points that I kept stumbling across, that the same behavior or what looks like the same behavior can have very different um, psychological and emotional roots. Thank you for calling. Thank you. Lily from Long Island, you're on the air. Hi, good afternoon. My question is, I have a two-and-a-half-year-old, which I'm always really worried about having any type of technology around her, whether it be a cell phone or an iPad. And I wanted to know if in your studies you had seen the correlation, whether um, that uh, exposing children and as they age, does that then lead to any type of obsessive-compulsive disorder. So do any of the technology um, that we have readily available today for children and going onward into early adulthood, how does that factor into compulsive behavior? Right. So um, the, the technologies that you're describing are 
not quite old enough um, so that people who were exposed to them as you know little kids are now adults um, in whom there is or is not a compulsive behavior. So um, I will say that the scientific jury is still out on that, but um, the American Academy of Pediatrics, which has looked at um, digital technology, screen technology extensively, their recommenda recommendation is that no child under the age of, I believe it's five, should have much screen time, um, but I have to put an asterisk there, um, as so many educational programs um, have migrated to, uh, to screens, that has gotten a little bit softer, um, and the, uh, the, the pediatricians are now saying that a half an hour of screen time, maybe even a little bit more, might be okay. But clearly, there's a huge role that parents um, have to play in controlling whether their kids are going to start living their lives on screens before they're, you know, hardly out into the real world. Thank you for calling us. Uh, are there connections between different kinds of uh, of problems, for example, often autism is seen as uh, having an OCD component. Um, there's, there can be overlap between different psychiatric conditions. Um, that's called comorbidity when you suffer from more than one thing. Um, but it's not terribly common. And um, autism um, is, is really in, in a class by itself. And it, the compulsive behaviors of an autistic person uh, just look like the compulsive behaviors of somebody who has OCD. Exactly, which, is, which gets us back to the problem. Some behaviors that look the same might, in fact, have quite different roots. Carol from Boston Spa, you're on the air. Hi. Hi, Leonard. Thank you for your show, and thank you so much for this topic. It's crucial. Um, okay, I'll try to preface uh, my question briefly. Um, I've been suffering from severe OCD for oh, 20, 20 years at a high level and then beyond 20 years, actually. And I've been hospitalized uh, um, uh, uh, several times. Um, two places are in Four Winds in Saratoga and McLean in Boston. My question is this. Um, through all these years of therapy and doctors and all assortment of uh, treatment, um, including myself, have not come up with the crux or the real cause of what's driving, you know, my OCD. And I agree with you about a certain events can really trigger the main event of OCD. Um, but I still don't know the real crux of it. So I was wondering, I do not respond to any of the traditional treatments, you know. Um, the exposure um, and response prevention therapies and such? I've been through all of that, and McLean is actually a, a huge uh, mm -hmm. uh, place for that. And um, uh, assortment of drugs, trial and error. And I just have not been responding, so I was wondering, Mike, this is my question, if there have been any theories or studies out there with difficult cases like mine. Sharon? I think we may have lost Sharon again, but as I understand it, uh, Carol, uh, some of the treatments involve putting people through the thing that they fear. So... Uh, if, yes, exposure. Yes, and, I've, I've done and, that. And so what, what happens after you've been through the exposure and you've come through it uh, alive and without any problems? Uh, that, that still doesn't help? Uh, no, it's like it's not effectual because it seems like 
I'll, I'll do something, and it won't cross over. It doesn't transfer. In other words, it's just a one-shot thing. Okay, so I was yeah, afraid yeah, that if I stepped on that step, the world was going to – there was going to be an explosion. I stepped on it. There was no explosion, but there will still be an explosion next time. Well, see, that's the thing. It's not that I fear that it's an explosion. And with my contamination issues, it's not, not as if I feel like I'm going to die. So that's that's the thing. I, I, we haven't been able to figure out what exactly the fear is. <laughs> Uh, Sharon, I don't know uh, if, how much you've heard of this, but we're talking about why all of the traditional therapies, including exposure and response prevention therapies, don't work in some cases. In Carol's case, for example, she's right. had OCD for over 20 years. Well, they don't work in a lot of cases, unfortunately. Um, so what you're describing, Carol, is um, sadly all too common. Um, and even before we get to therapy, people with OCD say that they, I mean, the, the surveys show that they often go um, 14 to 17 years um, without uh, an accurate diagnosis. And they often have to go to more than two therapists before one who is even competent to treat what they have. Um, so in the case of ERP, because it is so distressing, um, you know, for the germ situation mm -hmm. and being told that you have to, you know, touch a public toilet um, and not be allowed to wash your hands, people absolutely cannot stand that. So uh, something like a one half of people are not even able to continue on with exposure and response prevention. Um, so we clearly need more therapies. Um, we need more effective treatments. Um, some people get some relief from SSRIs, the standard antidepressants. But there's also um, evidence that a cognitive behavioral approach, um, CBT um, and mindfulness, that meditative technique, can help, um, again, some people. Um, and, you know, just briefly, that entails teaching yourself to think differently about your thoughts. That's what cognitive behavioral therapy is. And in this case, the thought is recognize that this idea that's invading your brain is not true. It's a, an aberrant signal from an overactive circuit in your brain. And because it's not true, you don't have to obey it. You don't have to listen to it and carry out what it is telling you to do. Now, obviously, as I describe it that way, it sounds a lot easier to do than, of course, it really is. Um, but again, because uh, ERP is so difficult and so distressing, researchers have been working on these alternatives and mindfulness cognitive behavior therapy has had some success. Carol, what do they do at McLean, which is very sophisticated? Well, McLean focuses on the CBT, which is weird because it's as if, like, say, they just come up with, you know, you meet your, your behavioral therapist and um, you um, they come up with um, things to do. But they don't get to the bottom of it. And I know, like, this is one of those illnesses that are just, like, almost impossible to really a treat. Um, but it, it's as if, again, it's, it's, it's ineffectual. Um, I'll, I'll try something and, uh, um, you know, uh, what the behavioral therapist recommends. And it wasn't, how to say it wasn't successful. Well, it was a number of years ago now. And, and I don't respond to ERP, CBT, uh, the SSRIs, you know, the uh, SRIs, they're, they're all experimental, in my opinion, pharmacological uh, uh, drugs. And well, we have we are pretty much out of time, and I had to. Yeah. I want to bring in two things, and maybe they apply here as well. 
Uh, is there a difference between OCD and OCPD and obsessive compulsive yes, personality disorder? And also, is dopamine uh, involved in any way in compulsive behavior? Right. So there's definitely an overlap between OCD and OC, uh, obsessive, obsessive compulsive personality disorder. But Fifteen not seconds. As much, not as much as you might expect. Fewer than 20% of people who have OCD also have OCPD, so distinct situations. And OCPD is... Uh, Extreme conscientiousness, basically. Uh-huh. The, the meticulous person. Exactly. Thank you so much for being on our show. I'm sorry we had those technical difficulties, but we this is something we obviously have to return to because a lot of people have responded. Uh, Sharon Begley's book is called Can't Just Stop, An Investigation of Compulsions. It is published by Simon & Schuster. And uh, I thank you so much for being on today's Please Explain Look at Compulsions. Thank you, Leonard.